Hello, and uh, welcome to the Hacking State Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Hannah Franklin. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, thanks for coming on. I was excited to invite you on the show just because one of the things that we are concerned about on this um, on this show is how do you break out of like existing systems? And what are some of the problems with current existing systems? And in a way, that's your focus as well, except you're niching into the education system. You are a uh, largely homeschooled and then I would say self-taught uh, or at least alternative taught student yourself and you're relatively successful at a young age with rebel educator and you're sort of spearheading a movement to get people away from traditional education and really out of the public school and i'd say more generally just the tracked educational mindset so i wanted to have you on to discuss how you got there experiences you pull from having your own sort of non-traditional education and get into some of the arguments for why more and more people should be considering this as an option for themselves or for their children. To get started, let's just go ahead and talk a little bit about how you got involved in this in the first place. Like, when did you know that you wanted to be an advocate for educational reform or alternative paths to education? <laughs> I ended up here totally by accident, if we're being honest. Uh, but the story also starts when I was three, basically. So I went to an alternative preschool and kindergarten, very Montessori inspired. We'll probably come back to Montessori later in the conversation, but for those who aren't familiar, yeah, definitely, uh, it's an education philosophy founded by Maria Montessori about a hundred years ago. She was Italian um, and she was probably one of the greatest pioneers around how we educate kids uh, in the 20th century. I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole here, but there's a lot to talk about with her. We can come back later if that's of interest. But anyway, I went to a Montessori inspired preschool and kindergarten, um, grew up homeschooled first grade through 12th. And then by the time I got out of high school, I'd pretty much become disillusioned with the education system as a whole. I thought for a long time, I'd probably be homeschooled in high school, but then do a more traditional path go to college, do that whole, you know, have the whole college experience, take the sort of standard trajectory into a career path, and then kind of realized that I was probably getting a better education as a homeschooler at 16 than I was going to be getting as a college student in a traditional school. So I ended up opting out of college. I went and worked for a startup alternative or a startup apprenticeship program called Praxis. There are a bunch of different Praxises out there that your, your listener base is probably familiar with, but this one was um, founded in 2014. I graduated high school in 2015. So I came in really early. Um, basically, they were in the business of helping people land apprenticeships at startups instead of going to the traditional college route. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of helping people hack the college system. And then I hacked Praxis. So instead of going through the program, I interned for them and eventually got a full-time job. They paid me basically to do the program. And I worked for them for a few years. I started as an application review intern. Uh, and when I left, I was their program manager, which meant I was basically doing everything from curriculum development to training coaches to kind of doing like quality control and participant experience management as they were going through the program. It was a really cool job. I learned a ton. And when I left, I kind of realized that I'd built up a lot of skills in the education space and also had a strong interest in it. Uh, the past few years have been a very interesting time in the education world specifically. People have kind of 
between the the woke movement and the cultural movements that are moving through particularly our education system which is mm making a lot of conservative families unhappy to what happened with the COVID shutdowns and everybody bringing their kids home from school, which sort of shifted the Overton window around what was considered acceptable in terms of like, well, we, we can't have our kids at home. That's crazy. And then everybody had their kids at home. They're like, wait a second, this actually isn't so bad. And also we're seeing what's happening in school on Zoom classes and we're pretty unimpressed. Uh, I think parents on both sides of the political aisle felt pretty strongly about that. Um, there's just been a ton of movement around people sort of expressing disgust, uh, everything from dissatisfaction to disgust around what's happening in the education system at large. There's a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs building new schools. There's mm. a lot happening. So it was a very interesting time to be talking about this. And I just felt like I had a lot to add to the conversation as somebody who is sort of, uh, ahead of the curve just chronologically in terms of I was homeschooled before it was like a really big movement. And so I can kind of talk as a grown up homeschooler about what my experience was like and how it didn't ruin me and make me super socially awkward and actually set me up for success in a lot of ways. Uh, so I started talking about this and the more I started talking about it, the more it kind of just started as like a, a passion thing. And then the more I did it, the more I realized that people are actually really hungry for this. And a lot of people wanted to support me and help me expand the reach of what I was doing. So now I'm at this quasi full-time. I have other things that I'm doing too, but a lot of it feeds back into the education commentary. So yeah, that's the like mid, that, that's the rambling short version of how I got here. Nice, nice. Well, I'm going to dig into some of those points um, if you don't mind. So how did Rebel Educator actually get started? What was the genesis of that idea? Yeah, so I I left my full-time startup job at Praxis in January of 2021, so about two and a half years ago, and I was doing, I kind of took a break from doing anything because I'd gone basically straight from high school to startups and kind of needed some breathing room to figure out, like, okay, we, we got really far here, but what do we actually want to do? Like, we need to give it a second to figure that out. Um and a lot of what I started doing when I was taking space and I was like, well, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like, uh, I was writing and I was talking about education. Um, and then a lot of the, the project work, I started freelancing for a while. A lot of the project work I was picking up was education related, not commentary, but like doing marketing for an ed tech startup and doing curriculum development for a, a program, an educational program at a nonprofit and stuff like that. Um, and I, just started writing more and more about education. And then I did a, a fellowship with the Foundation for Economic Education, um, a writing and, and content fellowship and my area of expertise. Like when they brought me in, they specifically wanted me to be talking about education during my tenure there. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, wait a second, I actually really like this. But then Rebel Educator, like fully, I, I just thought I was going to be building out my own personal brand as Hannah Frankman doing this stuff. Um, but then I met an investor who was really interested in the idea of a media brand that was bigger than just one person, but was looking for one person to spearhead it and build it. And I was like, well, I guess we're launching Rebel, this Rebel Educator thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was in, we got off the ground in May of 2022. So we've been at this for like 14 months now, something like that. If my math, I'm more a word person than a math person. I think it's 15 months now. Um, so it's still kind of like a baby project, but we've been at it for a little while. Hmm. Well, 
so that's like a nascent project. And what did you learn when you were at Praxis that sort of gave you the confidence to continue going forward in this direction? <laughs> so much. Um, Praxis was a really formative experience for me. And I mean, anyone's first startup job or anyone, let me, let me back that up even more. Anyone's like their first big girl job or first big boy job is going to be formative. Um, if you add into the mix, the fact that you're at a, a small scrappy startup with a pretty small team. So you have the chance it's, it's, you know, you, you got, you have to do well in order to keep working there. But at the same time, if you're doing well, there's just ample opportunity to try on a lot of different hats and get your hands in a lot of different things. That's even more formative. Um, I think because I was homeschooled, I was able to really lean into the parts of my personality that are very self-directed and very entrepreneurial. And mm. so I think I was sort of already on a path to be interested in those things, but then working at Praxis really solidified that for me, that I really like the scrappy startup life and I really like doing entrepreneurial things where you don't really have to ask five layers of bureaucrats for permission. You just be like, I have this idea, I'm going to make it and then I'll show it to somebody later and see if anyone likes it. Um, but I think it took, honestly, I feel like sometimes I'm still realizing things that I learned at Praxis that were helpful, that have that have bled over into what I'm doing now that I don't even realize I, I got from that experience. So mm. it was kind of, the perfect prelude to what I'm doing now because it was like 50% learning how to work in a startup and be entrepreneurial. And it was 50% education, learning about the education space. So I was in a really interesting position being on the education team, specifically my first, when I came on full time, I was working for directly for the director of education, who was the person who had designed the original curriculum. He was the one training all the coaches. He trained me. He taught me how to be a coach. Uh, he's, his name's TK Coleman. He's one of the co-hosts of the minimalists podcast. Now, some people may or may not be familiar with him. If you're not, you're totally missing out. He's incredible. He's a great speaker, uh, really, really brilliant person. Who's great at synthesizing ideas, highly recommend listening to some of his stuff. Uh, but I got to learn how to coach from him and I got to learn how to develop curriculum from him and how to think about designing an education experience. And I think a lot of that is, you know, I had my own experience as a student growing up homeschooled and I was very self-directed. So when I was in high school, I was basically designing my own curriculum, but I was a designing a curriculum for one person. It was a school of one. So I mm. only had to know what worked for me yeah. and I wasn't able to tease out, well, like what are my quirks and my preferences and my proclivities and how do those things translate to other people versus not at all. And then when you go into a startup environment where you're building a curriculum for hundreds of students, very different experience to learn to think about, okay, like the average student, if we aggregate everybody, the average student is starting at point A mm. and we're selling them a program that's promising them a very specific outcome. Like this is harder to build than just school because school is like, okay, you get a passing grade, you're good. It doesn't matter if you get, you know, you do a great job at every project that we hand you the way the program was set up, we, was, we were guaranteeing everybody was going to land a job. They were going to land an apprenticeship at a real company. So point B is everybody who comes into the program has to be hireable by the end of the boot camp that we're putting them through. And so I had to learn very quickly, like, how do you discern what point A is, point B is, the delta between the two? How do you figure out how to design a learning experience that's going to work for your ideal participant, but also catch the people that don't? 
map onto the things that you're designing? Like, how do you make sure that you have fail safes in place? You have support, it's customizable. How do you train a team of coaches mm. to steward people through this experience? Like I had to learn so much boots on the ground stuff that I think made a lot of my thinking about education a lot more tangible. I had a lot of theories and hypotheses coming out of high school, but I hadn't tested them. So I had the opportunity to test a lot of things. And at the same time, you know, when you're working for a small startup and you're someone who's very curious, like I am, and you ask a lot of questions about, well, how does, how does this part of the business work? How do we think about profit margins? How do we think about where we hire people? How do you think about like how marketing feeds into educated into like the actual program experience feeds into like alumni experience? How do we like build a, an ecosystem around this and like figure out where to put resources when you build a lot of business acumen to doing that. So I think those two things combined, did a lot to prepare me. I had no idea that I was being prepped, but I was basically in training for what I'm doing now. I just had no clue where I was going to end up. Yeah. And and what you're doing now seems to be taking off. So for those who are listening, like Rebel Educator recently hit a hundred thousand subscribers on Twitter. We actually um, hit a hundred eleven thousand today. <laughs> yeah. I took a screenshot just because the triple ones was Please really don't, pretty. Don't count the oh. discount the eleven thousand. Um <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's actually, that's impressive. Okay. Um, and that means that it's sort of taking off. And I guess, um, you know, we try not to date the show too much by talking about current events, but I think it, it really is a pivotal moment. What the effect of COVID had on people's perception of the quality of the education system and how involved parents are and whether they know at all, what the schools have even been teaching their kids. And so, it seems to me like that was a you know unique moment in time where people had an opportunity to reevaluate the education system and a lot of people found it wanting to say the least um so i'm curious what are some of the big concerns and areas of interest that people have right now um that they're coming to rebel educator with that's a really big question um one of the fun things, like we have a few different components to what Rebel Educator is. We have a publication, we've got like a blog and stuff, but Twitter is my favorite, not just because it's growing. It's X, <laughs> it's X now, it's X. Mm, yeah, okay. I guess we did date the show right there. We're right at the pivot week. I'm not used to it yet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I. it's my favorite because you're able to get a pulse on your audience space pretty effectively because you can just ask people questions. So I'll I'll run polls, I'll ask questions, I'll get a read on like how happy is my average is the average parent in the audience with their schools. Uh turns out a lot of them aren't satisfied with the school that their kids are currently in. How yeah. um you know, how, what, what type of education do you have your kids and what are the biggest problems you're running into? If you're, you know, running into issues, choosing a school or a homeschool experience, you know, whatever your educational path is, what are the biggest impediments to just pulling the trigger on something? And it's been really enlightening to learn about the people, not just what's resonating with the content I'm putting out, but also how my audience self-describes once they're present in my ecosystem. So I think the, I mean, the underlying unifying thread for almost everyone is public schools aren't great. They need to be better. And the average kid is not getting a great experience. And, you know, we're, we're interested in alternatives. And I think there's a pretty broad array from there. Like there are a lot of people who are, 
um, more politically driven and they're like, well, we don't like this cultural phenomenon that's happening in our schools or we aren't, um, you know, we don't want the the Democrats who are running the teachers unions to have our kids or whatever. We don't want wokeism in our schools or like, did you hear there was a litter box in the school? Like, you know, our kids are getting pulled out immediately. There's like that yeah, faction. Because of some people. of the children are cats, you guys. That's why the litter box is there. <laughs> yeah, there's there's like the libs <laughs> of TikTok's parents. That's right. that's the first category. The next category are the really like academically driven parents who okay. they look at the average, like the nation report card, the average test scores across the country, like whatever metric you're looking at. And I mean, they're they're really not flattering. It's not good what's happening in our schools and what's coming out of our schools. And so there's another faction of parents who are just like these test scores are abysmal and the outcomes of the average student are are wanting and we want something better for our children and so we're looking for something else i think that's the next category the next category is people who just have a reverence for the sanctity of childhood and the people who like they want their kids to actually have a childhood they want their kids to be um they want their kids to be have time to play and have time to work on the projects that they're interested in and for their their curiosity and their creativity to be left uncorrupted, which the school system is is not very good at leaving un, unharmed. Mm. Um, and so there's this this other faction of people who like they're just looking for a really great education for their kids. And that can be great academically, like they can be really excited about something like a classical education or a Socratic education, yeah. or it could be like, I don't really even care what my kids are doing academically. I just want them to be in a beautiful environment that's not fluorescent lit and that they can, where they can play. And then I think there's a faction of people who are more sort of like small L libertarians. So not so not like, you know, libertarian party libertarians, but ideologically libertarian where they're like, we don't really want our kids inside of a big system. We don't really want them just sort of like defaulting to the mainstream norms. We don't want them just doing what whatever pop culture tells them they should be doing. We want them to be learning how to think independently. We want them to learn how to be, have agency and be self-directed and be you know critical of what other people are telling them instead of just accepting it. And we want to find some like localized school that has uh, you know, uh, the capacity for both the the student and the parent to have a voice and not just be a number in a system. And mm. I think that's that's a driving force for a lot of parents too. Is the 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 national behemoth that is the teachers' unions and the Department of Education? They're actually quite rude to parents. Uh, they make it very clear that they hold parents' opinions in very low regard. Uh, they hold the individual desires of a child in very low regard. They absolutely think they know better for your kids than you do. And I think a lot of parents find that offensive and they find that off-putting and they want something else. And so they leave. Um, this is a very sweeping categorization, obviously, but I feel like those are kind of like some of the main thematic categories that I've noticed people falling into when mm. I talk to people on the internet about this stuff. Right. So there's sort of like three buckets. You have kind of like the ideologically oriented people who are just kind of upset that their kids, their kids are not getting educated or they're getting educated in a system of values or anti-values mm -hmm. um, that they find to be, you know, for lack of a better term, problematic. And, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and then you have sort of the practically minded people who are more uh, like, like ambitious 
and they just want, you know, the best possible education for their kids. And they can tell that the public school options aren't doing it good enough. Um, and then there's sort of this third category of uh, what I would say are like the romantic kind who are interested in sort of like, you know, ideals around childhood. And, you know, you, you talk about the sanctity of childhood and being able to do things on their own, uh, you know, spending time outside, for example, which you basically never get to do. Um, I mean, I was in a public school and you get like one hour inside of like, you know, on like a dirt field, <laughs> like <laughs> that's your outside time. It's like um, prison. You all walk in circles. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I was fortunate enough that like I lived in I, I went to the countryside after school. And so I got to spend a lot of time exploring in the woods. But if if I had been able to do that during school, uh, that would have been much more constructive and educational. Um, yes. And instead, we're just like, you know, standing on a, a like a a tetherball court, like hitting each other in the head or something. <laughs> um, and I think uh, we could delve, we could delve either into each of those three buckets um, or we could just sort of talk about, or I guess for now, there's a few aspects of those buckets that I want to address because they sort mm -hmm. of encompass some of the potential criticisms that I'm sure you run into all the time with people that are trying to defend the educational system. You already, you know, through some, threw some spears out at the teachers unions, which are sort of, I'd say, a relatively easy target just because of how corrupt and gross they are. Um, and even a lot of teachers, even a lot of public school teachers will tell you that they don't really represent their own interests or the interests of the children. And so I think that's uh, a very easy target. But there are some other objections that I'm sure you get from parents or other educators um, to some of the criticisms that you're providing or that some of these camps might have that I do want to get into. So I want to start first with the practically minded people, um, because I feel like that's the, in some ways, the least divisive um, is the people who just say, look, I just want better outcomes for my kids. I believe that my kids deserve, you know, whether it's accelerated learning or advanced classes or just topics that are not available in most public schools. I mean, now, if you want to learn Latin or ancient Greek, uh, unless you're going to a prep school, it's very unlikely that that's going to be offered, uh, even at the high school level. You're really going to have to wait for college to do something like that. And so I want to talk about this first camp. Um, what are some of the alternatives that they have available and that they consider uh, when their kids are, when they're looking to sort of give their kids an edge or give their kids a more bespoke educational experience? Yeah, I think I think first of all, your point is astute that this is the hardest camp to find fault with. People still do, but I think they have a much more uh, a lot, much less divisive leg to stand on, which is basically like we're we're stakeholders in our children's education, and if you're not delivering the outcomes that you promised us, we're going to take our business elsewhere. Um, which is a very, actually also still a very controversial stance to have, right, but it's much right. more reasonable to defend. Mm. Um, there are a lot of options out there. And I think there are more than people realize. And it depends a little bit on your geographic location. There definitely are hubs of innovation in education around the country. Uh, there also are kind of deserts. There are areas where there's not a lot, but there's also online programs. Online schooling has become really big over the past decade or so, and especially the past three to five years. And when I say online education, I do not mean a competitor to Zoom school. Mm. Um, COVID Zoom school was a disaster. It was an abomination. It was horrible. 
and it was not intentionally designed at all. It was taking an already subpar classroom environment and trying to transpose it onto a Zoom call, which is not an aesthetically pleasing or inspiring place to be. It's like being in a cubicle and like generic office building in, you know, generic corporate park outside of generic city. Like it's just, it's just, there's nothing inspiring about it at all. Um, and that's kind of what, Zoom school was for a lot of people, I think. And online school can actually be a really amazing experience. I had a, an episode on my podcast uh, with my friend David Perel, who runs uh, online writing courses for adults. So mm. this is not exactly the same thing as the, the kid-centric school I'm talking about, but he talks in that interview about the art, the artistry, the art form of designing an education experience that is captivating, entertaining, enthralling, like it is a, a thing that he is out to master. And there are a lot of people who are building online schools who feel very similarly to him. And I think hearing people who are doing it, talking about it just really shifts the paradigm around what internet education can be. Um, so there are really cool online schools. There's one called Synthesis that's uh, a spinoff of Elon Musk's Ad Astra school, which he yep. originally built for his own kids and the SpaceX employees in California. It's mm. now an online game-based school. It got a lot of traction on Twitter maybe three years ago. It really kind of exploded. A bunch of famous Twitter investors have bought into, I think, the seed round. Um, some, like a bunch of people on Twitter were really excited about it. So it got a lot of buzz. Uh, but there are other cool online schools too. There are some project-based schools. My friend here in Austin is running an online Socratic-based school. So for people who really value intellectual inquiry, that's a really awesome program to check out. Um, and then if you're in person and you have things in your local area, the options range from anything to uh, like really innovative schooling models like Acton Academies. That's a big chain of, or yeah, a big like network of schools around the US, actually around the world. I know people operating Acton Academies in like El Salvador and Asia and stuff. Um, but Acton is a really cool alternative program that's very like innovative, very student-centric, very agency-driven. Montessori schools are another great option. They're traditionally more for younger kids, mm. but there are some Montessori programs that have educate, they, they go all the way through high school. Um, the micro school movement has really exploded. Micro schools think basically like a one room schoolhouse for the 21st century. So you're using all of the resources that the 21st century offers, like online courses and an app driven learning and AI and machine learning driven learning programs. Um, but also it's like in a small and like usually mixed grade environment. Where yeah. So, so, so those, those integrate yeah. mixed age cohorts, right? You often it depends. I mean, a micro school can do whatever it wants. It's its sure. own independent entity, but often it's everybody in the elementary school age range or something like that is all in like a living room together or something, all working on their own things. It's a really cool model. So there's a lot of stuff like that that's out there that parents have to choose from. Great. And so that gives people a lot of different, I guess, alternatives besides just insanely expensive uh, private schools. You know, I, I think I think one of the arguments that comes up is that all of these alternatives, they say, um, are extremely elitist, right? They're only open to parents that already have a lot of resources 
um, or they have the option to move somewhere or something along those lines. How do you respond to that? There is some truth to that for sure, that it requires a level of time and energy expenditure and monetary expenditure to be able to put your kids in a program like this. Like that's not, that's not inaccurate. Um, but I think there's a lot of innovation being done to make these programs accessible to kids. Um, there also are a lot of options. Uh, I really balk against the elitist argument because it's yeah. very victimy and it really, it, it, it strips a parent of the dignity of having agency to choose an education for their child. And I don't think that's fair. I also don't think that's accurate. I've talked to too many people who would technically fall in the socioeconomic camp of, well, you can't afford this. And they've delivered incredible educations for their kids. And there, there are a lot of different ways that people have done it. Um, mm. So I think it's important to acknowledge like, yes, this is real but also it's not in absolute and it's not finite. It's not a, it's not a terminal condition to be yeah. in a position where you don't like at face value have access to good education options. Uh, there are a few different things that are, I think worth mentioning here. Um, one is the school choice movement, which is um, for those who aren't familiar, basically it's a voucher system on a state-by-state -state basis where public school funding basically comes from three sources. It comes from local, state, and federal level. Um, this is a program that addresses specifically the state funding. Like typically the, the traditional standard approach to this since the inception of our public school system has been there are state level, there's state level tax money, state level funds that are allocated to every public school and it's it's allocated per student. So mm. say in Arizona, for example, which was one of the first states that this ESA movement passed the education uh, scholarship accounts, basically the state allocated $7,500 per year per student to every, every public school in the state. So if you had 300 kids in your district, you got 300 allocations. Um, and basically what the scholarship accounts do, the voucher system is if your like your student can opt into instead of the money just by default going to this to the local district it can go into a scholarship account and that money can then be spent on any state approved education uh, program and the things that the state approves are pretty expansive so you could spend it on private school tuition you could spend it on tutoring as a homeschooler there's a, a whole array of options and things that you can use to spend that money on so in states that these scholarships accounts are have passed basically in states where there is now school choice. I think there are 12 states currently that there's a really big movement happening right now to push it through in a bunch of states, which is really exciting. Um, parents have a ton of options financially to choose schools. And you might say, yes, yeah, 7,500 isn't like lots of elite public school, private schools are like 40 to 60 K a year. And that's true, but there also are a ton of really quality programs that are being designed specifically to be affordable within the, the confines of an ESA. There are, there are micro schools, especially in like online schools that are being built to fit the exact price point of the ESAs, the ESA allocations. So that's very exciting. Um, a lot of people get real innovative too mm. with figuring out how to fund things for their kids. Um, they'll start homeschooling pods so that like different parents can yep. trade off the education of their kids while they, you know, the other parents work. 
they'll switch to working remotely so they can be at home while their kids are studying online. They'll find jobs where they can bring their kids into work with them because they care more about the education of their kids than they do about a specific job. Um, there are a lot of different things that I've seen parents do to make this work. And once you start thinking kind of entrepreneurially about how you're going to make it happen, I think there are a lot of different ways that people get really creative with it. Yeah. And I, I guess the other thing I would just say about this, uh, this accusation that gets leveled, leveled is that really we're trying to, you know, we're trying to get the best of the best to be, to, to, to not have barriers in front of them succeeding. And yeah. someone who has a problem with that, frankly, they're trying to subsidize their own child's, you know, mediocre education uh, with the tax dollars of somebody else uh, is sort of my perspective on it. Um, but I think it's also if I can interject really quickly, I think it's also important to point out that a lot of people make the argument that education is a human right. Um I think that's a really messy moral and philosophical argument to get into. And we don't have to go down that rabbit hole now, but I will say that I think we, you know, we didn't have an education system for quite a bit of our country's history. And we had quite a few problems, but we also were doing pretty okay before. I mean, the department of education came even after the public school system in our country did, which came well into the history of America. Like these are all new phenomena. We were doing fine without them, yes. but when you think about innovation and education, think about all of the other technologies and innovations that have occurred throughout history. They started out as elite. First cars were not a consumer good for the average citizen. They were a thing that only rich people had, but you had to start somewhere with a market that could pay for it and fund the research and development of this new product until eventually it became a thing that people figured out how to deliver systematically and effectively and cheaply. And now everybody has cars multiple cars. It's just like, you know, a, a, a factor of day-to-day -day life for everybody. So we're building better and better options in the education space. And, you know, we're, the public schools aren't going anywhere. We already have the public school system. Um, it's no matter how loudly people argue against it and try to get rid of it, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. And so kids already have somewhere to go. They already have an education system that they have free relatively access to um the money's already being forcibly allocated there and so you know the the innovators who are building out these new education systems they will eventually figure out how to make these things cheaper and more accessible if the market's there um but this is also just kind of like part of the nature of of new commodities and new new services and offerings like it takes a while for them to become less expensive but people are actively working on it yeah and i think it's it's short-sighted to think well these are just elitist no this is just part of the process of innovation right right and and so um the other thing is yeah just the uniformity of the system does not allow for any real innovation which is probably why we haven't gotten past like the factory model of education, right? Mm -hmm. um, that we've been trapped in. So there need to be more experiments. And this elitist criticism is really just a way to stop uh, from even having the conversation. Um, so let's get into some of the more experimental components of this. Um, there's obviously many different things you could do. You could teach alternative curricula. Um, but there's sort of two things I wanted to discuss. One is uh, accelerated learning. 
because I feel as if a lot of students are, I mean, we don't have tracking anymore, like in, in some of the European systems, but they're essentially locked into a track where you're learning at the same pace as everybody else at your grade level. Mm -hmm. Maybe you get into one or two advanced, you know, math classes or something like that. But for the most part, everyone is doing the same thing at the same time. And so I want to ask you about what you know about outcomes for accelerated learning. How fast can certain students move through the system? Um, is it that a student might be able to accelerate in one area, but keep pace with, with his grade level in another area? How does accelerated learning work in cases where it's possible? Yeah, so I am, I am a huge, huge, huge advocate for self-paced learning. And that means both acceleration and deceleration from the standard path. I'm, I'm a very strong advocate for both. I think both are necessary for a healthy education that's actually going to set kids up for success in the long term. Um, because kids, kids are developmentally self-regulating to some extent. Um, like they, they kind of have an innate sense of what they're ready for, what they're not, what's useful to them, what isn't. A lot of these senses that they're having show up as curiosities. Um, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's helpful. It's just like a rule of thumb metric for thinking about this. So you can have a kid who, and, and there, there are studies that show this very clearly. You can have a child who is three years old and picks up a book and wants to learn how to sound out the words. And a three-year-old can learn to read. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, this kid's a genius. They're the next Einstein. They're, they're a savant. They're going to be amazing. Um, you can have another child who is eight years old and is obstinately refusing to read. They just don't want to do it. They're not interested. They're not ready for whatever reason. It's not clicking yet. They haven't hit the threshold developmentally where that curiosity that that three-year-old had already adopted is present. Like it hasn't, it hasn't emerged yet. That eight-year-old, like if they're in the, the traditional school system, they're going to be forced to learn to read because they are considered behind. And they probably have been forced to learn how to read since they were six. Mm. And a child can be forcibly taught to read. It, it happens all the time. It's happening every day in our country and in systematized education bureaucracies in the world at large. Um, the child will learn to read. A child will simultaneously learn a resentment against reading. They will come to think of it as a coercive task that they must do. It feels like a punishment. And that child will probably never voluntarily read a book in their entire life. And if they do, they will have to work at it. They may want to read very much, but it will feel like effort because their base level association is this is the thing that I am forced to do and I don't like doing. But if that eight-year-old child is left to their own devices and eventually they get curious and eventually they learn how to read, I mean, obviously there are things you should be doing with that child. You should be reading to them. You should be exposing them to, to written language and to, you know, you should be modeling reading for them. You should be setting up the environment where reading is a logical thing that eventually follows from everything else they're doing. They learn to read when they are eight. By the time these ch children hit middle school, the three-year-old who learned to read and the eight-year-old who learned to read are going to be like pretty much on par in terms of their like lexile levels, their, their reading comprehension levels. Um, the eight-year-old will catch up to the three-year-old. And this is this is very heavily documented. This is a, a known phenomenon that children 
become developmentally ready for different subjects and different things at different times. And that's not a bad thing. It's just normal in the same way that some kids have a growth spurt when they're eight and some kids have a growth spurt when they're 16 and like kids hit different developmental phases physically at very different times. So why on earth? Like, it just makes sense that this would be happening psychologically too, but we can't see it. So it's hard to measure. And it's also really hard to systematize when everybody's doing something different. So we end up with a system that just sort of like, you know, it, it just teaches to the mean. It's like, all right, we're going to average everybody out and like, we're going to get as close to the middle as we can. And we're just going to teach to that. And every kid can just, you know, get along with it. We'll have like an accelerated program for gifted kids to some extent. If a kid can't hack it through the grade that they're in, they'll get held back. Uh, and we'll just kind of like it all averages out and we can, you know, most of the kids coming out of the system will be relatively okay. And so like it works. Um, and so that's, that's the education system that we've been running. Cause that's how you mass produce an education in the same way that you mass produce clothing. And it doesn't actually perfectly fit everybody, but it's like, well, you know, it's close enough. It's good enough. So do, do you think that there's an inherent scalability issue? No. I actually don't. I think that there has been historically, but I don't think there is anymore because we have technology that removes the necessity of a human component for some of the things that historically needed a human to scale. So there's a really interesting study um, referred to as Bloom's Two Sigma Problem um, came out in, I think, 1984. And basically the study was, it was studying how children learn and what inputs and environmental shifts change how quickly the child is learning. And what Bloom discovered is that children who, when they are getting like, you know, tutoring one-on-one -on -one attention, they learn at a vastly accelerated rate to children who are getting the you know standard classroom attention basically what he's discovered is that you can dramatically accelerate a child's rate of learning by doing things like active recall and spaced repetition where you're learning something you're learning something in a short period of time you like do like a kind of like think think about what the experience you have on like something like duolingo to make mm. this like really tangible for people you go through the app you're learning like say spanish you, you know, you're scrolling through the app and you, you know, have like a five or 10 minute lesson where you learn a bunch of words. And then at the end, you have a quiz where you have to remember actively, you have to activate the part of your brain that's, that's learned this. You have to remember what you just learned. And it's in a really short timeline. So you have like a quick lesson and then a quiz right at the end, mm -hmm. and then you get graded on it immediately. And then the next lesson is adaptive. So whatever you learned and whatever you didn't learn based on the test is then what's coming back up in the next lesson. And so it's very quickly iterative on what a child is learning and like where they're at. And when you have a tutor uh, who's working with a child one-on-one, -on -one, they can help tailor a lesson to exactly what a child learned and didn't learn. And when you do that, a child's learning rate just goes through the roof. But you can't replicate that in a classroom. So this like accelerated learning thing has always been a very elitist idea. It's like, well, you know, like rich families who can have tutors, I guess, will like they'll be able to take advantage of this and nobody else can. Um, not true for like things like micro schools, small private schools. They've been able to implement this for a long time. But about 10 ish years ago, give or take, people started building apps 
that use machine learning algorithms to replicate what Bloom learned about in the 90s or the 80s, rather, about using things like adaptive, adaptive curricula, space repetition, mastery-based learning. So like once you've clearly mastered a thing and, and proven that you understand it, then you move on to the next thing. Mm. Um, and these apps are able to replicate the input of an individual teacher. Like if your child is learning like algebra through an app that's using these, these basically like learning science uh, procedures, you are basically replicating them having a tutor. And so now that we have this technology and this is very new, there's like the past decade, uh, the scalability problem has entirely gone away. And the only thing that we have now is an adoption problem, which means people think about kids learning math in an app and they go, ooh, that's so inhumane. And so, you know, divorced from, from like a good childhood experience to which I'm like, I'm sorry, have you looked at what we're doing with kids now? <laughs> it's on the topic of inhumane and, and divorced mm -hmm. from like a good, a good childhood reality. Um, but we, we have a huge adoption problem. People have, we have the technology, people have no idea what to do with it. People are afraid of it. They think it's going to take away jobs in the same way that, you know, people think the self-checkout kiosk in the grocery store or Target is going to take away jobs. Like it's a whole thing. Um, so it's, I think it's going to take a while for the adoption to actually happen, but we do have the technology to make this super scalable. Excellent. Well, I mean, that was a great answer to the scalability critique. And I wanted to also bring up the, and this sort of leads us into the third, or sorry, the second bucket, which is the idealists, right? The people who have an idyllic version of what a childhood should be, what a school experience ought to be. Um, you know, some of these like one room schoolhouse type things, uh, get, I think get very close to this bucket's concerns as well. Um, but one of the issues that comes up here, like when you talked about the student who uh, might need deceleration, for example, or might be accelerated in one area is the problem of like gaps in their education, right? Um, so for example, I had a friend who grew up in uh, the Montessori school system. And, you know, my understanding of Montessori, I've never done Montessori, but my understanding is that a lot of that philosophy is based around letting students kind of pursue their own interests. And one of the notable gaps in, you know, her education experience was that she just, I mean, basically was like afraid, like deeply afraid of math, <laughs> did not like math, did not, you know, go very far in math, avoided it essentially at all costs. And I think this is largely attributable. Now, maybe something else went wrong that has nothing to do with the system, but I think it was largely attributable to the fact that in this interest-based system, she was not really challenged uh, to kind of take that on at an early age. And so there ended up being some hurdles that she was sort of stuck with later on in life. Um, so what do you say to this problem of potential gaps in people's education if students or even the parents are left to their own devices? So first of all, I will say that there are good Montessori schools and bad Montessori schools. There are quality, you know, any type of alternative education, there are going to be high quality schools and there are going to be lower quality schools. And that's part of the problem is like, you know, parents have to vet the schools that the child's going into. I'm not, I don't know nearly enough to make a judgment about the school that your friend was in. Um, there are probably a lot of factors at play in the experience that she had. Um, but in what I would consider to be a quality Montessori school, children are going to be challenged to push their limits, to be exposed to things, to try things. They're not going to be forced 
into doing things, which I think is really important because again, like a child who is forced to learn math is also going to hate and resent and avoid math. Mm. Um, and that's also not a good outcome. But I think I think there are a couple of things here. So one, we already have kids coming out of school with enormous gaps and we sort of just like don't notice or pretend we don't notice because I mean, we all have them. So like, it's not really worth criticizing, but it's also kind of uncomfortable to criticize because once you look at it, you're like, wait a second, well, what are the gaps that I have? Um, but when you think about it in a lot of schools, a passing grade um, is 60 to 70%, mm. which means you can go through, say, like you're learning fractions and you get passing grades in all your tests. And so you are able to move on to the next class, the next year's studying, but you only got 60 to 70% on all your tests, which means you only understand 60 to 70% of what you need to know about fractions. And then you move on to pre-algebra and you have all of these gaps in your ability to do the pre-algebra work because every time a fraction comes up, there are specific operations when working with the fractions that you just don't know how to do because you never actually learned those. And so again, you have gaps, but again, you learn enough of it that you're able to, again, get 60 to 70% on all your tests. You have a passing grade, you move on to the next level. Now you're studying algebra. And again, you have all of these gaps because there were parts of pre-algebra that you didn't understand, but technically you got a passing grade. So almost no one goes through the education system getting straight A's and A pluses and like an actual 100% grade on everything. So everybody's coming through with gaps. And sometimes those gaps are very significant. And the system is set up as such where those never get caught, but they do compound. So over time, you're doing more and more complex work while still not understanding everything about the fundamentals. And that's also hugely problematic. So the gaps exist, whether you're in the system or not. The question becomes more like, you know, what is the nature of the gaps? How comprehensive are the gaps? Also, um, like just the base level, like uh, literacy and numeracy rates in our country are pretty bad yeah. uh, a lot of a lot of kids in various grade levels are not at grade level with their numeracy and their literacy and a lot of adults are illiterate and enumerate um so you know gaps is a very a very relative thing to be talking about but mm. i think for a lot of kids and this is not an absolute across the board but i think it applies to a lot of children i think this is a a, a semi-universal truth if you understand how to learn and you understand the process of acquiring information challenging yourself maybe learning to a task which i think is one of the most effective and useful ways to be able to learn mm -hmm. you can fill in any gap on your own and if you haven't learned to resent a subject you you're able to, not only do you know how to learn, but you're also not afraid of the learning process because you don't think that the thing that you're learning is unpleasant or a thing to be avoided. So I generally think it's better for something, this is a very controversial take, but I generally think it's better for someone to graduate from high school with a significant gap 
in their knowledge, but with a love of learning and an ability to go learn that thing when they are ready. Like you might be 30 years old starting your first business and go, oh no, I actually have to learn how to do spreadsheet math so I can run my business effectively. I would rather, I think, I think it is more beneficial to be in a position where you've always loved learning and you feel super self-directed and super confident and you can go learn math to the task that you have and figure it out than it is to be someone who went through a system that forced them to do things that they didn't want to do, that they were not ready for. And to be someone who just resents math so much that you're going to run and hide from it for the rest of your life. And will perhaps even avoid starting the business because you know, business involves math. And so you're like, ah, no, I'm going to do something else. Um, obviously this is a take that requires a lot more nuance to like really delve into the specifics of like, okay, what's a good iteration of this? What's a bad iteration of this? There's a, there are a lot of layers of complexity, but I think there are a lot of situations in which it's fair to say that forcing kids to do things is doing more harm than good. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, that's a, an interesting position and a lot of people are going to have some problems with it. So I'm hoping to hear back from some people. <laughs> I'm also, if you have, if there are obvious things that you think people are going to push back on, happy this is to what Hannah does. She's ready. She's ready for the attacks. I want them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I'm happy to expand if there are pieces of this that you think are worth delving into. Cause I do think like, I'm, I'm well, not pro just like free for all, like just yeah. do whatever you want and be free and be happy. Like I do think structure and encouragement is good. Um, so how many hours a day of instruction do you think is necessary? <laughs> necessary or beneficial uh let's say sufficient 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 uh that's even murkier um i think i know so many homeschooling families who do their kids work in like two to three hours a day and then the kids do whatever else they want for the rest of the day and the kids are you know testing out of the park in terms of you know every, all the things that matter um i think that we grossly grossly overestimate how much time kids need to spend learning. And I think some of that's because school is also childcare. So it kind of has to fill a full workday because the kids need something to do while the parents are working. Mm. Um, but I think in general, most kids can get an absolutely world-class education with a couple hours a day of like really formal studying. I hesitate to say instruction too, uh, I actually also hesitate to use the word formal and studying because there are so many different ways that this can express and look, but like two hours of focused learning time a day, mm. you can accomplish so much. Most of, especially elementary school, so much of elementary school is wasted time. Kids really don't learn that much in elementary school <laughs> and you can make up anything that you missed very easily later on um, as your brain capacity expands. Um, and I think, you know, I'm... I think there are a lot of, I've seen a lot of, you know, amazing childhoods where kids spend a couple hours a day doing focus work and the rest of the time they're just, you know, free range playing, do whatever, doing whatever they want. And that's awesome. I've also seen kids doing a couple hours a day of focus work and then doing, you know, working on projects while they're starting a business or learning other skills or doing studying just for fun or reading. And all of those things are super constructive too. There are so many different ways that you can slice this up and make it make it work. I also think the a day thing is a little bit relative. I've also watched homeschool families do like 
you know, two or three months of super intensive work. And then the rest of the year, just kind of like, you know, do whatever you want. There's so many different ways. There's like, it's a, okay, this day of the week or these couple days of the week are intensive school days and the rest of the week we're doing other things. There's so many different ways that you can allocate your time while still learning and growing and developing, not just as an intellectual, as someone with intellectual capacity, but also into a whole human and all the different facets and pieces that are make up a person, which is really what you're, you're crafting as a parent and an educator. Um, there's so many different ways to do it, but it really does not require nearly as much focus time as people think it does. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that's largely true. I mean, I just remember, you know, I went through public schools K through 12 and like, if you're at all, even just a little bit bright, I mean, you're just wasting so much, you waste so much time just sitting, staring at the clock. And I think one of the biggest takeaways from this conversation that we've had so far is that a lot of the problem with the current school system is just that it beats the curiosity out of kids. And it almost seems as if by the time people are adults, and we all probably know people who are kind of like this, there's a kind of learned helplessness that develops where people don't have the ability to take initiative. They don't have the ability to uh, execute on a, self, a completely self-directed project where someone isn't telling them what to do or how to do things or even how to um, how to begin to plan for that. And um, that leads to, you know, kind of just a, a, a lackluster form of adult development where people aren't flourishing, people get stuck in jobs that they don't want to be in or on career tracks that they don't know how to get out of. And I think the root of a lot of that goes all the way back to their experience in early education, where that innate curiosity just got trampled on for years and years and years. And then by the time they're, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, they're just like, Oh, what am I going to do? I guess I'll go to college. That's the thing that I'm supposed to be doing, you know, and then they get out of college and they go, I guess I'll go get a job because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And all along the way, they're giving up more and more of their own agency. Yeah, I I agree completely. We're we are more effective at crushing children's agency and curiosity and creativity than we are at actually educating them effectively in like anything academic. Um, it's it's one of the things that school does pretty comprehensively mm. is smother people. Like we we I talk a lot online about de-schooling. And yeah. that's a thing that gets a lot of attention. People, it really resonates with people is the idea that okay, you've left the system. Now, what do you do? Mm. Um, and it's a really, it's a really potent question for a lot of people because it's a very real experience. It's like, wow, I learned all of these terrible habits. How do I get rid of them so I can be more self-directed and chasing the things that I, I want to chase, which is by design, like the, the, the people who designed the education system wanted a very compliant population. A lot of people think that this is an internet myth, but it's very true. You can go read the documentation. It's all there. Um, they, they didn't really want a highly creative population because that's not terribly useful in an industrializing society. But, you know, going into the 21st century where careers are becoming more and more diverse and dynamic and changeable again to be economically and socially successful, you have to be able to adapt and learn and be self-directed and pick up new skills and 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 all of those things require a lot of agency so you know i think it's very arguable that the school system 
ever was a an overall benevolent force but a lot of people disagree with me on that but i i find it hard to to find it such but i think you know it's definitely become more detrimental to our, and more divorced from the reality of what success requires as we've moved into the 21st century and the career landscape has changed so much hmm. So one more thing I wanted to ask uh, just before we uh, get ready to close out the show is about this third category of the sort of more ideologically minded or mm -hmm. anti-ideologically minded in many cases, uh, parents or cohorts of people who are interested in this. I mean, it's a more philosophical question, so feel free to answer it however you'd like. Obviously, we're not going to get to the bottom of it right here, right now, um, but is your so so it's sort of a two part question. The first part is is your approach to educational reform value neutral? And sort of the second part is you know education in itself uh does have some sort of inherent values. So how do you think about the politicization of educational process? And what values should people be aiming for? Or do you not care? There's so much here. This is a great question. Um, so first of all, by definition, education can't be entirely values neutral because someone is making a values based judgment around what is important for a child to know. How do we teach it to them? What do they need to be both intellectually and, and from a skills based standpoint, well versed in by the time they are finished here? That is innately imposing a set of values onto a child. Um, so you, you cannot entirely divorce education from, from values and, and, and morality, I think, mm. um, I personally, I'm a very big fan of educational approaches and modalities and systems that honor, like one of their top values is honoring and supporting the intellectual independence of their students. So um, as an example, I think Montessori schools that do Montessori education well um, are a really great example of this. Um, they highly value a child's ability to formulate their own conclusions about things. Um, there's a, I was at an event last night, actually here in Austin, there's a one of the, the largest network of Montessori schools in the world is called higher ground Montessori. Or their schools are called guidepost Montessori. Um, they hosted an event. It was a debate about like values and education. It was very aligned with the question that you just asked me. And they were describing the representatives from their school were describing how they approach teaching values and they were making the case that it's really important for kids to formulate their own conclusions about things even if they disagree with their parents which is something that I talk I talk about this a lot on the internet too like if your child is they agree with you on everything you haven't actually done your job you may think that you're defending them against the wrong thing of someone else's ideology, but really all you've taught them is how to mirror you. And like, you've set yourself up as the authority, but someone else can come in and, and replace you and become the authority that they're mirroring. You haven't taught them to think, you've just taught them to, to mime what you think, to parrot 
which is not helpful at all in raising a, a rational, logical, um, intellectually independent mind, which I think is a necessity to raising a whole and well-functioning human. Um, there are schools, there's a school, another school here in Austin called Alpha that one of the exercises that they have, I think they do, I think they run this one in middle school. One of the exercises they have their kids do is whatever their family's stance is on an issue. And they'll take like really um, controversial issues, like immigration or something. It's like, whatever your family's stance, if your family's a Republican, you learn to argue the Democrat stance for immigration. If your family's Democrat, you learn to argue the Republican stance. And then they send the kids home. They're like, go debate your parents, like have fun. Uh, and like, it's, it's an exercise that's like, you know, it's part of what the families are signing up for when their kids are in school, but the purpose is to make the kids feel comfortable arguing both sides of an issue, but also more importantly, like feel comfortable standing up to the people in their lives that they might not want to stand up to and, and holding a stance. And I think that's really important. Um, I think like my personal stance, I have a set of values that I think are important and good and true. I have a moral stance. I have a philosophical stance. Obviously, I'm going to be very partial to educational structures that are that are sympathetic to similar stances because I have determined for me, I think these things are good and virtuous and true. But more importantly, I value people's ability to find an education system that works for them. So I think it is a necessity for like right now we sort of live in this desert educationally where there's this one gigantic monopoly and it's very hard for anyone else to compete against it. It's very hard for anyone else to get any like mind share whatsoever in the education conversation. And like anything that's competing against this behemoth public school system is a good thing. But I also think like we need a correction away from just having this one way of doing things. And part of that correction is going to be more localized schools more private schools, more independent schools. And some of those are going to be ideological. Some of them are going to be parochial. Some of them are going to have a religious bent. And that's okay. I think that's important and necessary. And parents have a right to choose the school that their kids go to. Um, and so I think I think that the ideological, like the people who are fleeing the education system purely because of ideology, I do feel like they're missing part of the point. I feel like there's more going on here than just ideology. Like there are the the issues in our education system are so much deeper than just the political lines that have been drawn in the sand or the ideological lines that have been drawn in the sand, which is one of the issues that I have with um sort of like the the very standard private school model that's often like a Christian school or a Catholic school the academic outcomes are often better in those schools, but a lot of people are just, they're looking for a school that has different ideolo a different ideological stance from the public school model that's more aligned with their own beliefs and values, but it's basically the same system, just like dressed up with different colors and diff a different mascot and, you know, different, different things that they're teaching in the science department or whatever. It's not, it's not a fundamental enough shift to be effective in the ways that I think an education has potential to be effective and kids deserve for it to be effective. So that's a very long-winded and expansive answer to your question. There's a lot here to dig into, but I think, I think you can't divorce the values from an education. I think parents have a right to choose the values that they want their kids to be exposed to. I think 
the most beneficial thing and the most intellectually honest thing you can do is put your child in a environment where they will be encouraged to develop their own values as much as possible outside of, you know, just the scope of what you want them to come out of their adolescence believing. But I think we're going to have a diverse range of answers to this question and options. And I think that's important too. I think that's part of having a healthy educational ecosystem, which right now we don't have at all. But I think, you know, we're, we're going to see a lot more values-driven schools emerging over the next decade or so as the alternative education movement really takes off. And I think, I think that's a good thing. I think that's as it should be. That was great. Well, thank you so much, Hannah, for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, we really appreciate having you on. And I think this is a conversation that's going to just really be ongoing, right, about the future of education. And I think you're well positioned to to be having it. And honestly, you're a great representative um, for uh, the other side, uh, maybe even the side of good, I might say. I um, hope so. <laughs> yeah, we hope to be on the side of good. Um, Hannah, where can people find you and where can people learn more about Rebel Educator, uh, your podcast as well, the Hannah Frankman podcast launched a few weeks ago. You've got some great interviews, David Perel, some others already up there. So uh, tell the people, where can they find more of you? So you can find me. I spent a lot of time on Twitter or apparently x.com. I don't know what we're calling it now, but Twitter's, <laughs> Twitter's grandfathered in. I'm sticking with that for a while, probably. Uh, I spent a lot of time there. You can find me. Uh, my personal account is at Hannah Frankman, just my first name and my last name. And everything else is linked from there. So that's probably the best starting point. But you can also find the Rebel Educator Twitter account. Um, my podcast is called the Hannah Frankman podcast. I've kept everything, uh, you know, fall eponymous, very, very easy to find, very simple. Um, but there I've had, like, like you said, I've had a bunch of guests on talking about education. Um, I did an interview, uh, a few weeks ago with my friend Connor Boyack talking about the importance or like the, the accessibility of homeschooling and the importance of education reform and a lot of the stuff that we talked about here so if this interview is interesting, that might be a good jumping off point for people to get a little bit more uh, context and detail on some of the things that I talk about here, get someone else's perspective on it, get some more resources and stuff for jumping off. Um, but you can find the podcast, Spotify, Apple, YouTube, wherever you listen to shows. Um, and yeah, you can find me on Twitter. You can DM me on Twitter. If you absolutely hate this and disagree with everything that I said, I would love to hear your thoughtful arguments about why I'm wrong. It helps hone her my way. perspective too. <laughs> Uh, so you can DM me on Twitter. Uh, yeah, that's that's where I'd start. All right, great. Well, that's all, folks. 